Hey there, Traveler, and welcome to an all-horror-themed episode of Citywide Blackout, bringing the best creators from around the world. Now, as we close in on Halloween, it just makes perfect sense to welcome back one of my favorite horror authors, Kevin Lucia. This time, we're diving into the small press industry with his role at Cemetery Dance Publications. But it's not all shop talk. Kevin's got a new project in the works, including The Heart at Pleasant Brook, out this Halloween. Along with a look at the story, we talk about the kill factor in these books and some of his best methods to end a character. Hey, it's a horror episode. And joining me now, you love him so much, he's back for more, author and also ebook and trade paperback editor at Cemetery Dance Publications. Kevin Lucia joins me. Kevin, welcome back, sir. It is so cool to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. And this is a very cool thing because we are sort of very slowly sliding into the Halloween season. It is horror yes, time. Uh, Hulu will soon have their horror recommendations up. And uh, I'm, I got to say, I love this season. It's one of my favorite ones for a lot of reasons. But, of course, Halloween it has to be the big one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The hol- I'm, I like all sorts of different, uh, you know, holidays. But Halloween is probably the one that makes me feel most like a kid again. You know what I mean? It's really... There's something about that. Like, I love summer, but as soon as we have that switch over to September, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for that. That slightly crisper air, the color in the leaves, that, you know, I'm ready for all that. So, oh, yeah. me too, man. Me too. And I'm ready for some really cool new book news over uh, over at Cemetery Dance Publications. It's where you work. The big news is that you guys are now getting into the ebook and trade paperback editions for the books. Uh, how did all this come about? So it actually was roughly about a year ago. Um, you know, I've been involved with Cemetery Dance on some level since like 2011. Uh, in 2011, Norman Prentice asked me if I wanted to slush read for the magazine and for their first round of, um, of ebooks. They were just thinking, well, let's get in the ebook game. And I said, slush reading, that'd be great, you know, because I, when I was doing my MA in creative writing, I had an opportunity to slush read. And it's an awesome experience. You know, it's really when you're a young writer and I, I, I recommend anyone who's a young writer, if they have an opportunity to slush read somewhere, you really get to see what stories look like when a writer is trying too hard to be something and then how it feels to get lost in a story. And then you're like, well, I want to do that, you know, like, and so it was a really great experience. And then a couple of years later, um they're like oh we need reviewers you want to start reviewing cemetery dance we're doing this new we're starting the blog i'm like sure okay then they're like well our review editor moved on we think we love it you took it over i'm like okay (laughs) you know and um i started writing a column for them uh and last year i can't even remember what norman prentice and i were talking about but norman prentice had been kind of uh the ebook editor and they had played with a couple paperbacks uh, but he had just gotten a new teaching job and he and I were talking and he said he was moving on. And I thought to myself, I said, why? I said, uh, how much, you know, we asked him some logistic questions about pay and hours and things like that. And he said, well, he said, I think you should, I think you should throw your hat in the ring. And I said, I'll do you one better. I think you should throw your hat in the ring and you should pitch to, to Rich that Cemetery Dance just needs a full on start a paperback ebook arm, basically a, a, a small press, indie press arm of Cemetery Dance Publications. Um, and I thought it was a great idea simply because I am probably one of many people who will see the new Cemetery Dance releases and you're like, 
I can't afford that. <laughs> I have to mortgage my child, which is not say anything against those editions. And I, and I've had two books published by the, those limited editions, but it's just like, I thought that would be amazing to be able to hold that same beautiful cemetery dance product in your hand by amazing authors is if it'd be great for the community, the horror community, it'd be great for the market, it'd be great for cemetery dance. And Rich was all in, you know, and we're roughly, um, roughly a year into it, you know, uh, and we're like, I, I sort of came in on the tail end of Glenn Hirschberg's Infinity Dreams and uh, Mike Aronovitz's uh, uh, Dancing with Tombstones. So I don't know if you can really say I actually helped out with those releases. But since we've been there, you know, we've re released um, Norman Prentice's uh, Haunted Attractions with the Other Father, Mark Sieber's uh, follow-up to He Who Types uh, uh, Between the Rows, um, The Man in the Field, a wonderful folk horror novella by James Cooper. Um, we re uh, What's also been really cool is as I've developed a vision for the line is not only publishing fresh and established voices, but looking for, like, for example, unfortunately there was the silver shamrock you know but out of that um you know we picked up uh, john bowden's a uh, jedi summer which we published over the summer then greg f gifune says well i've got savages i'd like to see that reprint i'm like oh great we'll re reprint that um and we have a couple other silver shamrocks that we've rehomed down the road the bigger biggest one being in january i will be reprinting uh todd keisling's devil's creek um, which I was just so hyped about because I love that novel. Um, but, you know, Salo Ben just came out by Alan Baxter, and that's doing really, really well. And we've just got a nice lineup, you know, uh, ahead of us. And it's it's really turned out, uh, it's, it's going very well so far. I can't, we've had our, um, you know, trials and tribulations. I've learned very quickly that, the, that the, there are things that are going to happen in publishing that neither you nor man nor anyone has any control over and it's just one of those things you're like but other than that though things have, have been i've been going really well and the most important thing is i, I love it you know so oh yeah it's funny because you know most books come out in all these like different versions i think some of us take it kind of for, for granted but i guess for like the right. small press making the change can be a pretty big thing um right what would you say were some of like the bigger challenges to add this to your catalogs so, um, first of all, I have to give props to everyone that works at Cemetery Dance HQ just for putting up with my nonsense. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that I'm just going to drive them all insane and, you know, uh, uh, with my requests. One of the things that's been very interesting is that I am very much, I'm not trying to copy what Joe Mindhart does at Crystal Lake, but I, all my books are through Crystal Lake, and I have firsthand experienced what someone like Joe has done with that press and how he's grown it. But not only that, I think what separates Crystal Lake continually from other small presses is Joe is believes, first of all, he's there to service his writers, and then he's there to service the readers. You know, and that's what he's there for. So when we first started having these conversations with some of the folks at Cemetery Dance, there are things that they just weren't used to. Uh, for example, if Cemetery Dance announces a limited edition foil stamped numbered uh, illustrated signature edition of Stephen King's uh, Salem's Lot, it's sold out before it's printed. So things like marketing, review copies, buying ads, what do they need that for? So that was the first thing I figured we got to talk about. We got to 
you know, build up our reviewer list. We've got to look at, you know, um, what's my budget for Amazon ads for every release, you know, like how are we going to get books out there? And, and like I said, I mean, especially in the small press world, um, I mean, I've been doing this since 2007. I've seen this gimmick come and this gimmick go. But at the end of the day, when people are talking about a book, and especially when there's advanced praise for a book ahead of time, you can't beat that, you know? So that was one thing I really had to kind of, if anyone who works for CD hears me say this, is gonna make me sound so pretentious. I don't wanna say I had to train them, but like they just, you know, like I said, they're, they deal with limited editions that people are ready to, you know, buy before they're even printed. Whereas I'm, I'm like, well, you know, I can't, pro and also too, I had two books out for Cemetery Dance. One of them dropped right in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Mystery Road came out during the pandemic during the pandemic. And then my ebook just dropped two weeks later without any warning. Like I didn't even know. Somebody emailed me and said, Oh, I saw the ebook for Mystery Roads out. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so you can't promise an author your book is gonna knock it out of the park, but you want to be able to give every author your and they're limited editions, they don't really need to do that. Like Mystery Road, three years later, is almost sold out. And they didn't really do anything just because they've got collectors who collect. So when you start talking about paperbacks and ebooks, that was a whole different conversation. And then like authors who want to buy their books to go to conventions. So we started talking about that. And they're like, oh, well, we don't really usually do that. I'm like, if we're going to be signing small press authors who are doing conventions all year long, they're going to be want to be buying... 20 copies, 30 copies, 50 copies, 100 copies. I mean, that's what small press authors do. We keep stock up so we can go to conventions. So that was, you know, uh, but just little things like that. It hasn't been bad, you know, by, by any means, but like that's just not something that they've ever had to really consider with their business model. Okay. So we're a year into this now since the change was, uh, was made. Do you feel like the business is at a more comfortable place? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's running very well. I've been happy with all of our re uh, releases. I've also been happy, like, one of the biggest things, like, and I guess this is the elephant in the room when it comes to Cemetery Dance, and I'll just acknowledge it. You know, scheduling has been an issue with Cemetery Dance for a lot of reasons. Uh, a lot of staff have left, things like that. So my biggest goal was, you know, and a lot of people are asking me, oh, okay, so you're going to do pa paperbacks. Are we going to have to wait three years for that paperback to come out? And I was like, no, because we're doing it entirely through KDP and Ingram. So as soon as a book is published, we press the button and it's published. So that's probably the biggest thing that I've been happy, been happy with is that if a book is releasing on September 16th, that book drops. In, and I've, that's been little things I've had to deal with when I'll post the Cemetery Dance page and, you know, I'll be hyping a book and someone will joke, ha, 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 pre-order now, get 10 years later. And like, and, and when you really can't get upset at that, you know, and I just say, no, this is a completely different model. It's through KDP. If it says it's released in the 16th, there it is. It's released in the 16th. So I've been really happy with that. I've been happy with the way the books have done. Like I said, you, you can't uh, promise every author that you're going to knock it out of the park and they're going to sell a bunch of things. But I feel like the, the books have done well. If, if the books have not done, have not garnered a lot of reviews, which again, that's, that's a crapshoot too. You send review copies out to 200, 300 reviewers. You never really, but if they haven't gotten a lot of reviews, they still sold pretty well. Um, 
so I'm really, really happy about that, you know, and, uh, and I think the biggest thing for me is just keep, keep taking small steps, you know, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, you know, but still we kind of have a vision for the future as to where we'd like this to go. Now, when you made this change, uh, did you have certain titles that got like priority because of how like well they were selling or how well they were known? Well, I have to actually clarify something there. We didn't make a change. We just, the, so the limited edition line is Chuck, they're working very hard at the Cemetery Dance HQ to get that back where it needs to be. So the, the, the uh, paperbacks and ebook is, is kind of a separate entity, all, basically unto itself. So it's like another, it's like an imprint of Cemetery Dance. So we're certainly not changing from uh, the hardcovers or the limited editions or anything like that. Um, we're, we're just a, a separate entity, like, like I said, I felt it would enhance Cemetery Dance, enhance the community. So they're still working on those limited editions. Um, when I first started out, there were a few books that were around. Um, I will say there was a couple limited editions that were um, really postponed. And the authors asked me, can we put it out in paperback? And then I asked Rich, can we put it out in paperback? And Rich is like, Sure, let's put it out in paperback. You know, so like the Dismembered uh, by uh, Jonathan Jans, which is coming in November. And from what I understand, r- rumors are that Library Journal is going to have uh, a pretty massive article praising uh, uh, this. That was originally a um, limited edition. And then John emails me. Uh, he had uh, signed a audiobook deal. And he was wondering the status of the hardcover. And I'm like... <laughs> That's still backed up. I said, but you know what? Let me ask Rich, see if he's okay with it being paperback. And Rich is like, sure. So we're putting that out. I mean, the, the limited edition of that still will come out, but it's like, they, let's just put this out. Uh, another one, a Dear Diary, Run Like Hell by James A. Moore, which is a really cool occult crime, noir, supernatural, gangster, assassins mix. That was another one that was a limited edition. It's a, uh, illustrated by Chad um, or Glenn Chadbourne. And uh, it was just really backed up. And Rich is like, you know what, why don't we go ahead and just do that, you know, through the paperback line. So there's been some limited editions though, where he's like, no, we've invested a lot of money in that. We're going to keep that for a limited edition line. And I'm like, that's fair. That's fair. You know, and because, you know, at, at the end of the day, you've got to make decisions that make sense money-wise, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, really there, there was just some, things that were there uh, that had been accepted by Norman before I took the position. Um, Solo Bend was another one that was going to be limited edition, but it was just kind of lingering. And I, and that was actually the first book I accepted because I just asked Rich, how about we do this in paperback? And we're just like, sure, go ahead. And it's doing really well. You know, it's already, it's only been out for a little over two weeks. It's already got like 42 reviews on Amazon you know, with a 4.5 rating. So it's, it's doing, doing really well. It's got a nice book list review. Um, but of course I did open submissions uh, last, last June. So, um, which all joking aside, yes, I did get deluged with uh, submissions, but it really, really turned up a lot of great stuff. Like I'm, I'm at the tail end of reading th- through those submissions. And now at this point, my schedule is booked out into 2024. You know what I mean? So, and, and we're moving toward, uh, in the beginning, I only wanted to do one release a month uh, because I didn't want to overburden myself. But as we're getting a little bit more, you know, get this turning this into a well-oiled machine, we'll end up start re- you know, releasing two books a month and we're booked into, you know, um, early 2024. 
So some great novels and novellas and collections. And like I said, that probably um, is a little triggering to hear from most Cemetery Dance people, oh, your book. But remember, doing this through Amazon and Ingram. So when a book's published, when it's supposed to be published, boom. And, and, and right now we're at like six months ahead on all my books. So like books that are, you know, they're coming out in February and March, they're already done and uploaded to Ingram and just needs to be uploaded to Amazon when it's ready. Talking to people about the releases, and uh, I'm not entirely familiar with Cemetery Dance's history, so it sounds like delay is obviously a real, real problem. How do you assure them that that's just not the case anymore? Well, like I said, I, I there's two things. One, like I told them, Amazon KDP. Second will just be time. We'll have to prove it. And, and that's why I've been really, really happy. Like I have my list of books that are coming out. And every time a book comes out, I triumphantly draw a line through it. You know, so really, I could tell people until I'm blue in the face, Amazon, KDP, Ingram, two years from now, that's when, you know, for the for the paperback and ebooks, that's when it will stand the test of time. You know, when they could say, look, Cemetery Dan, the paperbacks and the ebooks has consistently put these out for the last two years. That's probably the best thing that's going to be able to show them, you know. All right. All right. All right, so we've talked about all the changes at Cemetery Dance, but I, but I also want to talk about the authors, especially, again, we're entering the Halloween season. It's a time of the year for scary books. What should people be keeping their eyes out for in the near future? Um, from Cemetery Dance or from me? Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll talk about your books okay, too, from, buddy. From Cemetery Dance? You got it. Um, yeah, so Every House is Haunted by Ian Rogers. We're reprinting that in October. And what's really exciting about that, first of all, it's a great collection. But what's really exciting about that is one of the sh- one of the short stories, The House on Ashley Avenue, is currently in production as a Netflix feature film uh, uh, produced by Sam Raimi. Um, and Sam Raimi, Mr. Raimi, was kind enough to give us an endorsement blurb for the book. So, yeah, it's pretty cool to have a book on the back cover. Sam Raimi, you know, director of uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, he's, he's given us a quote. So that's one to definitely look for in the October season. We're re-releasing a novel by Thomas Smith called Something Stirs. Uh, it's, it's a haunted house novel. Um, I, would, I would kind of describe it, if this makes any sense, as a mix between, say, Charles Grant uh, and Frank Peretti, if anyone is familiar with that, with that second name. You know, uh, it's, 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 it's framed from the, a lot like The Exorcist, it's framed from that Judeo-Christian framework of evil, faith drives out evil, uh, but it's a nice, subtle, quiet atmosphere of novel, you know, um, and those are our two big October releases right there. Now, The Dismembered is coming out in November, a little bit after, that's a, that's a, a nice throwback uh, with a modern twist, gothic romance, you know, it's got that great picture of that, uh, damsel in distress you know the other the other one where there's a castle looming in a distance she's like looking over her shoulder looking back at the cover it's, it's a wonderful cover by natural reaver so that's coming out in november so nice yeah. and if anyone is a net galley reviewer any net galley reviewers gothic by philip fricasi is up there on net galley and that's a if you're a net galley reviewer that's a perfect thing to read for october that was uh, the second book that i accepted uh, and it's only coming out in February 2023 because Philip Fricasi uh, writes books uh, with a frequency that I sneeze. Uh, so, you know, it's like he, he had all these releases coming out. I'm like, well, we'll put it over here. But I mean, that's a great novel. Uh, 
washed up horror writer gets a cursed desk that rejuvenates his career at the cost of his soul. I mean, that's a that's a great. So if you're on NetGalley, go go check out uh, a Gothic by Philip Picasso. Absolutely, and I should also mention that all the authors you've mentioned are also going to be future guests here on the show. So yeah. if you hear in the folks and you're intrigued by the, by the books, you keep it here. You're here all about it in depth over the next few months because and yeah, I I gotta say I am very excited because uh, James Moore, uh, familiar um, uh, with his work. Fantastic. I mean, they're all really good writers. So I am yep. very excited about this stuff. So let us now talk about your books because, of course, you've got two coming out pretty soon. One, The Horror at Pleasant Brook, and the other, Through Our Friends at Crystal Lake Publishing as part, as part of the Dark Tide series. Tell us all about them, sir. Okay. So The Horror at Pleasant Brook is one that I've been uh, toying with. I've uh, been working. It, I actually intentionally just sat down and wrote this whenever it was October. You know, and then when October was over, I kind of trailed off and closed the notebook and moved on to whatever else I was writing. Um, and it's uh, I wanted to write a horror novel that was reminiscent of one of those, you know, 80s monster flicks that, you know, maybe ran under the radar and sure it didn't have top shelf talent. But when you sit and watch it, you're like, this is really pretty good. You know, maybe maybe a little cheesy, a little corny, but really really enjoyable you know and uh a lot of the work i write is usually very atmospheric and quiet and stuff happens off the page now i i tried to make sure that atmosphere was still there in this book but in this book i just decided i'm going to kill as many people as possibly as i possibly can and in increasingly graphic ways so it actually became all very fun to write because every chapter i sat down i was like who's gonna die and how is it going to be evisceration? Are we twisting the head off? Is it someone to eat intestines? You know, that, that, so I was just, my challenge was just to, to just kill as many people and gruesomely as I possibly could. Um, I also really it was an intentional um, attempt on my part to write a old school horror story um, from a modern, modern sensibility. So you have a very, isolated small small town even smaller than clifton heights and it is in the adirondacks again just because i love the adirondacks but one of those super small towns that like has a main street and that's it you drive through the main street and then you're, you're through it and gone they don't have a police force they have a constable paid by like by the county um but my constable is you know used to be a detective in a, in a city came came home to her hometown and you know again i i'm I say this, people want to call it woke or what, I don't care. But so the, the, uh, the, shit, the constable um, is gay, gay. And one of the other characters is the, is the non-binary librarian who is the constable's ex. Um, then we have the, the, the male protagonist is your stereotypical horror nerd who already knows what's going on because he's watched all these horror movies. But he's also at the same time going through this coming of age awakening where he's like, I'm gay, you know, and I, I like my best friend better than friends. And I think he might be gay, too. But the best friend is, you know, so I wanted to write that. And but then I have a, a totally normal heterosexual couple. Well, she's a stripper and he's a recovered alcoholic. Um, but then I have a balancer at the strip joint who's also a devout christian who, but he works in a strip joint so you know I, I kind of wanted to really just play with people 
and just uh, just be really, I wasn't trying to tick off any check marks like on some social justice or I just wanted to write people who were people and I sort of just let them develop as it went out. And one thing is also probably there was a little intention here because I did spend the last two or three years while I was writing this, really binging those 80s horror movies. And as much as I love them, holy crap, are they misogynistic? I mean, how many times in those 80s horror movies could you have the female protagonist go, ah, I can't go on. And the male protagonist is like yelling at her and or dragging her or maybe even slapping her. Come to your senses. And I'm like, this is just awful. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what the actors probably had to work with, with the writing and stuff. So I wanted to capture that 80s slasher creature feature aesthetic. But I wanted my characters to be characters that we would believe would be walking around today. There is so much to unpack with this, and I love it. So a question I never thought I would ever ask on the show, but here we are. As a writer, what's your favorite method of ending someone's life? Well, I don't know if I have a favorite method, but I think my favorite scenario is when it just like is so abrupt. And like maybe I even tease you into thinking like everything's going to be okay. And no, it's not like I have a scene there that I do not want to spoil, but I, I, I couched it in all of these tender nostalgic, oh, it's a loving moment. And then the next second, and it doesn't, it's not out of context. It works with what's happening. I don't want to reveal too much, but then I was just like, no, this person just has to die. Like, I mean, it's the only thing that makes sense here in this moment, you know? So I don't know if I have a, I mean, disemboweling was pretty interesting, you know, the different ways a person can be disemboweled with like a knife or a stick or hands, you know, so that was kind of fun. So um, um, I had one scene where the where a monster got a hold of a, a shotgun but doesn't know how to use it. So it just bludges them to death with the stock of the shotgun, you know, um, you know, uh, there was, you know, it's always a nice touch when the person is dying and the thing is currently eating their intestines as they're dying, you know, and. But I, I guess I don't know about the method. I just like to do that like, oh, your back was turned. I just shivved you when you weren't looking. You thought it was okay, and it's not okay at all. I do like those moments where you think, oh, it's safe. They're going to make it. You know, they're, they're, they're almost at the end. The movie's almost over. And all of a sudden, boom, something happens. Like, And they're dead. When it comes to writing these scenes, though, uh, you obviously must spend a lot of time really working on the description, right? Because you don't have the advantage of this being like a visual piece. You can just show everything happening. You got to really describe it really, really intensely. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of times where you'll go through drafts and because the first couple of drafts, you're just kind of writing in the heat, you know, and then when you're editing, you're like, that doesn't make any physical sense whatsoever. You know, we're going to have, that doesn't, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote that, but that doesn't work. You know, so I would have to, you know, tweak some things or a beta reader would be like, a human's head doesn't turn this way. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay, we got to think about that. Have you ever done a scene where you write something in the end and you go back and think, ah, I can't actually publish this. This is, this is never going to work. Not, not really, because like I said, generally my stuff is all really, really subtle. You know, um, you know, and I've, 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 I've progressed over the years toward there are things that I've written now that I like, for example, probably the only thing that I was a little gun shy on early in my career was anything um, gratuitously sexual, you know, 
uh, obviously because I also had the dual position of high school English teacher out of the Catholic school, you know, um, and uh, kids are internet detectives, you know, uh, I could not say a single thing about my writing. And like today, very first class I had a kid I've never had before just comes up to me and tells me how much he enjoyed my book mystery road and it was really great. And I'm like, I don't even know who this kid is, but they, you know, word travels there, you know, um, but uh, I know I have got a series uh, of novellas where um, that are in not in limbo, but they'll be published eventually. Um, where I did write something that was a little bit more sexually uh, graphic, um, but it fit the tone. Like it, it, it fit. Like so, I don't think I've ever been afraid to write anything. My thought has always been: Is this really necessary? Like, is this? And there were a couple times, probably early on, where I'm like. Well, I just wrote the sex scene, but I don't think it's necessary to tell what I have to tell, you know, but some of the stories that I wrote recently, you know, it, it fit the context and it was necessary to, to, to show the scene. So, yeah, you know, I feel that way about some horror movies where like you'll see this really, really over the top, gory as hell kill scene. And then you watch and think, did we actually have to have that? I mean, OK, cool, but it wasn't really needed. That's probably why I've, uh, despite uh, some of my friends' um, insistence that I should watch the Saw movies or uh, or Hostel or a Serbian film, uh, you know, things like that. I, I, there, there, some of those, like for, for example, I, I did try. I gave it my best effort. If Wes Soudert is listening to this, Wes, I tried. I tried to watch Italian horror. I could not do. There's only so much, you know, melting faces and, you know, this gouged out eyeballs that I would just like be watching something like Fulci or Dario Argento and just be like, why? <laughs> why? I don't understand. There's no need for him to be vomiting maggots right now. Why is this happening? Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, there's definitely, like, I, I have never watched Hostel. I've never watched the Saw series. Don't want to, yeah. frankly. I'm sure they're great movies. Nothing yeah. against the folks behind it, but it's not. But I imagine thing. the first Saw actually had something there, and then whatever substance was probably lost by Saw Seven. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the uh, these series tend to kind of lose some some flavor as they kind of go along. They just make it for the paycheck. Yep. All right, Kevin. So, what can we look forward to more uh, more down the road? We talked about the new releases, but what else do you have uh, uh, cooking there? Uh, so um, obviously, I've got. Um, Wait, are we talking me again or Cemetery Dance? Sorry. <laughs> you know what? First you and then and then CD. Okay. So obviously the Dark Tide uh, uh, book is coming out, uh, Daughter of the Mists. That's a Halloween collection. Um, and that is uh, a Clifton Heights about a uh, black and white horror film buff uh, who ends up in his own kind of personal nightmare. You know, his own horror movie nightmare. Um, and I don't want to say anything more because I don't want to uh, reveal that. Now, the horror of Pleasant Brook was limited edition um, Thunderstorm books. It's already, uh, you know, pre-sold, but that will be coming out in paperback next October from Crystal Lake. So that'll be coming out paperback ebook from then. Um, I have a collection that'll be coming out in the spring uh, called um, When the Lights Go Out. And it's just a collection of a very eclectic collection of stories kind of spanning my career early stories that I sold in micro presses that maybe didn't fit into other collections, you know, stories that were just freshly written for this collection, you know, some novella length things that I could never really place anywhere. 
And I'm doing that through, I don't know if you're aware of the, uh, the uh, editor, Eugene Johnson. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, do- he's uh, done some pretty good anthologies with some big name writers. And he's formed his own press uh, called Saturday Morning Incorporated. The idea that, you know, we were raised as kids on these shows and Saturday mornings and things like that. That one is going to be kind of special because I'm donating all my proceeds to that uh, indefinitely to the the Children's Institute of Binghamton, uh, Binghamton University. You know, a lot of people may know or don't know that my son is high functioning autistic. You know, he's 15 now. He's doing very, very well. But when he was younger, when he was first diagnosed, this center was like a lifeline for us and they exist almost entirely on donations. So all my royalties indefinitely be going to that. And the only other thing is I did turn in a novella to bleeding edge books. Um, and uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out. I haven't heard back from the publisher about that. yet. Um, so, and that was an interesting one that plays around with number stations. I don't know if you know what number stations are. Go Google number stations. Uh, my, my number stations are not necessarily the same as what you're going to find with number stations. But when you Google number stations and you actually hear what number stations are, they're a little creepy. They're a little eerie. So I decided to play with that. So sure. we talked earlier about the the the, uh, the social justice aspect of writing and how you, when you write books, when you write certain characters, you're not trying to like check a box. But how do you right. know when it feels organic, when you think, okay, this is a real character? So I say this very carefully as a cis white (laughs) middle-class straight male, you know, um, I think the biggest thing is keeping in mind that all of these people are just people. They have their people. They, there's no agenda. They have their own lives. Um, uh, Mark Allen Gunnels is a good personal friend of mine. And he's actually who I have beta read all this stuff. You know, like basically, like I'm not trying to tick any boxes, but again, I'm a cis white, uh, straight male. I'm like, did I did I get this right? You know, did I lean into a trope too much? You know, and and one of the things that Mark Mark has always told me, he's like, listen, you just made them people. He's like, you highlighted their struggles, but you didn't make like you just made them people in relationships and you know emotional relationships and. And romantic relationships, they're just people, you know, which is not to diminish their identity, but I, as a writer, I look at these, like, I've seen the backlash over the last couple of years where some writers, you know, claim that, oh, sensitivity readers is uh, limiting my free speech or this or that or whatever. Oh, you have to write a female character. Or, you know. As a writer, I look, I'm like, I want to create something that's lifelike that's real you know my favorite author stephen king writes about people that you're like i could see i saw this person on the street yesterday i know this person went to high school or even worse he writes about characters that you like you look in the mirror and you're like i'm that person you know so what i'm thinking of writing a gay character or a lesbian character or even a nine non-binary i wanted to make them i just want to make them lifelike these are people you meet, you know, and, and as a teacher who's had these kids in his classroom, you know, I just want to, as a writer, I want to, let's, let's, re, let's you know, try to get as lifelike as possible. And these people exist, you know, so I, I, I do my best. Like I said, I, I think, I think the flap against sensitive sensitivity readers is stupid. You know, I'll never forget the very first time 
um, with my weird Western, Billy the Kid weird Western, which I'm finally going to start submitting to agents. In this very earliest incarnation, I had a beta reader who said to me, well, this one character is awesome, um, but you realize you have a magical Indian here. And I'm like, what the heck is a magical Indian? So I went and Googled it and I looked at it. And I'm like, crap, I wrote a magical Indian. You know, and I didn't know. I'd never heard of that term before. Did it frustrate me a little bit? Mostly just like, I didn't didn't know. You know, I didn't know that was a, a thing. Like, like, you know, Stephen King has kind of taken a little flack sometimes for his magical Negro, you know, or things like that, or, or Asian people are all, you know, so it's sensitivity readers, it's, being aware of these things is not a bad thing. I, I think it's, I mean, how much, how challenged do you want to be as a creator to create something that's authentic, you know? How do those kinds of experiences inform you when it comes to writing your next book? I think really at the end of the day, we're all humans. You know, the first couple of stories that featured predominantly gay characters, I was a little nervous when I, when I sent them off to Mark to look at them. But when he came back to me and said, he said, look, these characters are gay. You've highlighted them being gay and maybe some of their struggles, but these characters have jobs. They have lives. They're normal people who have normal relationships, sexual relationships, emotional relationships. These are human beings. And that's what it all comes down to is we're writing about human beings and gay human beings exist, lesbian human beings, non-binary, transgender, they're humans. They all have the same wants and needs that we all have, you know? And like I said, I, I'm always careful to be like, you know, if I were to write a story that takes place in the, uh, in the inner cities of like LA, I probably would want to do a little research and I would call one of my, you know, black friends and be like, how bad did I screw up here? You know, because you got to be open to that kind of critique. But at the end of the day, we're all humans with really the same kind of needs, you know, keeping in mind though that some marginalized people like, you know, it's like I tell my students, you know, I didn't understand the term white privilege for a long time until I realized that there are things that I've never experienced being white. It's, it's that simple. I've never, I've never experienced racism. You know, I've never been turned down to a, for a job or I've never had a girlfriend's dad look at me just because of, you know, weird, just because of the color of my skin. So you do want to keep things like that in mind when you're trying to write and if you're writing about marginalized characters. But the takeaway for me was that you want to be aware of making those characters authentic and genuine and being sensitive to their experiences. But we're all human beings. We all want the same things. We're all afraid of the same thing. So. Very true. All right. Well, Kevin, man, as always, a pleasure talking with you. Definitely looking forward to the, to the new books. And, of course, folks, if you want to learn more about Cemetery Dance, you go to, uh, you go to cemeterydance.com. You can find them at, uh, at a Cemetery eBook and Cemetery Dance on Twitter. Of course, many, many new releases coming out, and they'll be out on time. Yes, they will. All right, Kevin. Well, de uh, definitely enjoying this talk and looking forward to the, uh, the next one. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And with that, we bring this episode to a close. As always, big thanks to Kevin for joining me, and check out the work at Cemetery Dance Publications. Whatever your horror type is, 
there is something for you there. I guarantee it. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check this show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, folks, and I'll see you next time.